Good morning. Um, today's first scripture is from Matthew 4, 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right, how you doing? So I hope everything is well. I hope that you found some place of, of Sabbath this week, some peace, some time of, uh, of being calm and contemplating who you are apart from uh, what you do. And uh, this week we're continuing our study through the three temptations of, of Christ in the desert, and we're concluding this sort of a three-part series um, on, on, uh, on talking about power. What is it? Um, how do we use it? What do we do with it? How do we get it? Uh, is there a wrong way? Spoiler alert, yes. Um, and, uh, okay, so I'm going to open a word of prayer, and then we're going to um, jump into this, and, and Heather's going to do a lot more reading for us. I'm not good at public reading. Like, I get a long passage, and I start reading, and I start thinking about, you know, I could follow this up reading with talking about this, and I realize I've read the same line three times while I'm doing that. So I have other people read the big passages. Um, so, uh, okay, I'll pray. Father, thank you for this place, for these people. Thank you for everyone that you've gathered here. I ask that, you, that our time together would be um, life-giving. Uh, into a place like this, there are, there are many heavy things that are carried. And we bring them in and we sit down and we, and we look for hope and we look for life. We look for something that we can put into these things that, to, to maybe bring them back to life or to get them out of our lives. And um, I ask right now, first and foremost, that you would remind us that we are loved, that we, there is nothing to do. There is nothing to do. That we can just be present. We don't, at this moment, need to change anything. We can be present, we can be here, and we can receive that love. Um, we can receive a new perspective. Um, I ask that you would speak to each of us individually. Speak to me. Speak to everyone here. Um, give us exactly what we need to hear. As we open up these ancient words, give us first century eyes. Give us 21st century um, understanding. Help us somehow to be able to take these, this ancient conversation and bring it into today's world. Um, these words mean just as much today as they did back then. Help us to grasp them. Thank you. In your name, amen. So one thing I, I, I was actually thinking about a lot this week, uh, after I finished the first service, I, I tend to, I keep, there's this thought that keeps popping up into my head that Jesus was alone in the desert, which means nobody was there, um, which means none of the authors of Scripture were there, which means there was a time when Jesus sat his disciples down and he talked to them about all the temptations that he faced. And he sat them down and he said, you know, when I was baptized, it was revealed to me what exactly is happening here, what exactly I'm doing here. And God spoke to me, and I learned at that moment I would be a suffering servant, but I also learned I have power. And I learned in that moment 
that I have access to things that others don't. I learned in that moment that um, think I, I'm capable of things that other people are not. And so he, he instantly sets off into the desert um, to deal with these things, to work through them, to let the temptation sort of come to him, to dwell on all of it. He imagines himself turning stones into rocks. He imagined, uh, I'm sorry, stones into rocks. That's not, I can do that. Turning, <laughs> turning stones into bread. He imagines himself um, making a show of things, jumping off a building and, and having, you know, everyone see, wow, as he, as he is carried down by angels. And now he imagines himself receiving all the ruler, being a ruler of all kingdoms of the world. Um, and there's a way that he responds to them. But I imagine that the disciples sitting around as he kind of tells them this and explains this to them. I had to deal with this. I had to deal with this. I had to deal with this. Um, so um, the first temptation, Heather, come on up and, and, and do a little rooting for me. Um, so the first temptation, uh, he's tempted in the desert with turning rocks into bread, turns out. Um, and he quotes a particular passage. It's Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8. Go ahead and read that for me. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, the Lord your God disciples you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land of which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of those hills you can dig copper. So... He's in the desert again, and, and, and he's tempted with, hey, why don't, why don't you make some, make some bread out of some stones? And the first thing that pops into his mind is a particular instance with his people also in the desert, um, also needing to be fed, um, grumbling and complaining. And there's a particular story that pops in his head. And it's not just like when he's tempted, he pulls out random passages of Scripture out of context, like we tend to do. Um, if you look at most um, internet comment fights over scriptural stuff, which I, I love them, love them. Um, I engage regularly just because it's fun. Um, and, uh, and people just quote random pieces of scripture with no context. Jesus actually, the, the part that he quotes is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And he's not, you're not meant to just think of the one section. You're meant to think of the entire thing, the entire story. What was it like for the Israelites in the desert? And so how can I come to this situation now knowing people have been here before and have failed? So how's this going to work for me? Okay, so the next one is um, 
he's tempted to put on a show, to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, to be caught by angels when all the people are gathered around and to gain instantly to get like insta-famous and lots of followers. Inst- instantly, right? Lots of followers. <laughs> it's double. Okay. Um, and so Deuteronomy, he quotes, he quotes a simple passage from Deuteronomy 6, and it goes like this. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Okay, so there's this instance at, um, in, in the desert at, at Massa where, he is, uh, where, where God is providing miraculously for all the people. And we talked about this at length last week. Um, and it doesn't seem to impress. At first it's like, wow, that's neat. Pillars of fire, water parting. But they're kind of grumbling the whole time. And they get very used to like this incredible sort of atmosphere around them. And they keep asking for more and more and more and more and more. And so Jesus has to face this. And so instantly, instead of quoting, again, a random passage out of context, he goes back to the Israelites in the desert because he's in the desert. Um, and then thirdly, um, on the third temptation, the temptation to bow down to another as a god uh, in exchange for the kingdoms of the world, he quotes Deuteronomy 6 again. And when, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, and then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out to the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is in the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods and gods of the people's who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is the jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Okay, thank you, Heather. So, um, there, there, the question comes, hey, stop serving the Father, start serving me, and then you can have access to all the kingdoms of the world. And, and Jesus' mind instantly goes to one particular little piece of Scripture. Um, he says, get away from me, Satan. It's written, worship the Lord your God. He is the only one you should serve. So here he is in the desert. Um, and when this pops up, this question, you could have everything. It's like he looks around, and he's got nothing. And he remembers the Israelites were in this same place, and they had nothing. And God gave them everything. He says, I'm going to take you into a land, and there's going to be a city that you didn't build. There's going to be houses there furnished that you didn't furnish. There's going to be wells that you didn't dig, vineyards that you didn't plant, trees with fruit that you didn't plant, um, nothing that you did for yourself. It's all going to be a huge gift. And, and then it talks about how the stones there are going to be made of iron. What's that about? That you can make weaponry. That's what, the iron, that's what you made weapons out of, iron. Um, the hills are going to be full of copper. You can get rich. You can make goods to be traded. You, I'm going to bring you into a land and give you access to becoming the most powerful people on the face of the world. And he says, but when I do this, I want you to be careful because you're, you're going to forget about me. When you have all of these things, when you fill your life with all of these things, whether you earned them or not, when it is given to you, when your life sort of 
fills with all good things. They're not bad things. We tend to think that destruction comes from taking part in bad things. Um, We have a clear warning here. When you enter into the promised land, all the good things that God wants to give you, be careful so that you don't forget God in receiving all these things. This is what pops into Jesus' mind when this offer comes. And he looks back and he remembers the Israelites. So, so what Jesus is doing here is he is, from the beginning of Matthew till now, I've, I've touched on this a bunch, I'm going to keep touching on it. Um, he, Matthew paints Jesus as Israel, escaped from Egypt, um, um, up against an, an evil king who's killing babies, right? Um, and then we have... Um, Instantly, we have passing through the waters. You picture, you picture Israel passing through the, the waters of the Red Sea. Um, and so you have Jesus entering into the waters of baptism, instantly going out into the desert for 40 days in the same way that Israel passed through the waters and went out into the desert for 40 years. It's all as the readers, the Jewish readers are reading this text. They're like, well, that's us. That's us. That's us. That's us. And so Jesus is living through everything that the Israelites have lived through. And he's one by one, step by step saying, where did they go wrong? Where can we go right? Where did they go wrong? How can I make this better? Where did they go wrong? What are the things that they failed? There's a reason why God's people over and over and over again fell from where God had them. And it has everything to do with the fact um, that they kept forgetting God every time they were given anything. And so the question Jesus had is what what caused them to wander this long in the desert? Why did they fail? Um, And what we're starting to see is Jesus traveling this road for them in their place, doing it right. And so in this particular passage, we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about power, um, um, how we use it, and then we're going to talk a little bit about power and how it is to be received. Um, And so I'm going to spend most of the time on the first one, how power is used. And then I'm going to start off talking about um, this anthropologist, with a great name. His name is Geert Hofsted. Looking for a baby named Geert, G-E-E-R-T. <laughs> it's not going to end up on some top 40 baby list names of the year like one of our kids did. And you're like, ah, oh. okay. Um, okay, so, um, but this, uh, this anthropologist talks about how there's, there's two types of power in the world today that, that people handle. The first one is, is called high power distance culture. So he, he coins this phrase, this, um, distance culture, um, to talk about how different cultures and subcultures handle power. Um, there are always people with power in every culture. The question is, well, how, are those, how, how do we treat that person that has that power in our culture? Um, and so if you're going to look at, uh, there, there's, there's one there's one way of handling it. It's called high power distance culture. Basically, power is made visible and tangible. You can see the people with power. It is obvious that they have it by the cars they drive, by the, by the pantsuits they wear, by whatever. Like whatever it is that however they present themselves, you can see their power. Their chairs in the room are a little higher and a little bigger, and they have arms, and nobody else has arms on their chairs. And, um, and if there's a dramatic difference in power, it's usually seen as, it's seen as natural and it's crucial. It's part of a healthy society. People want to. People in high distance power, um, high power distance cultures want to see people in power because they want to have somebody that they can look at and follow. They want to know who in the room has been successful, and I want to sit sort of at their feet and learn from them. Uh, in Jesus' day, that's what this was. Um, you could see the rabbis, um, but you also see actually Jesus sort of transcending this and pushing back. Um, 
He talks a lot about people who love to be called rabbi. He talks about people who love to be considered higher. And you have always had Jesus pushing himself lower around others. And we're going to talk about what that does uh, in a little bit. Um, and the other, um, the opposite of high power distance culture is low power distance culture, um, where visible hierarchies and signs of power are discouraged. Those with power are expected to treat others as equals and not subordinates. Um, what we have is, is a shifting culture today where the previous generation, uh, my parents' generation, there was a, a high power distance culture. There, was, um, there were people in the room that were in charge, and you knew, and when they spoke, you were silenced. Um, and churches were built this way. Um, and this is how organizations are built. It's all about hierarchy. Now, um, in a low power distance culture, that's where, as much as I hate the word millennials are at today, um, uh, that's where um, really the younger generation, that's where they see things should be. They think high power distance cultures are, are wrong. They want everybody to sort of be in the same sort of vein, if you will. Um, in high power distance societies, powerful people try to look as powerful as possible. But in low power distance societies, powerful people try to look less powerful than they actually are. So even someone who recognizes that they have a lot of power um, will like put on a hoodie, right? Mark Zuckerberg, right? Um, and so you, even, you see this in, in every sort of field, there are high power and low power. So you have um, some comedians um, like uh, Jay Leno with a, a million cars, always driving something nice. And then you have Conan O'Brien, who drives like an 89 Ford Taurus. That's hilarious looking. Um, and so you, this, is, this is kind of what you have in, in culture. You see this everywhere, sort of the, the juxtaposition of these two. And we tend to make sort of moral calls on these things. We're like, that's not right. That's not right. And the higher ups are like, no, you guys, you guys are afraid to receive the power that you have. And the, young, and the, and the lower uh, power distance are, are looking up saying, well, you guys are way into hierarchy and it's impersonal and it's wrong. And it's not loving. Um, so I was reading an article this week about um, a lawyer who had this corner office, a obviously contemporary 80s corner office. Um, <laughs> And uh, talks about how he's in his 50s when he was in law school and he was younger. Everyone wanted the corner office. That's what you think of when you think of becoming a lawyer, becoming a partner, having a corner office. One day I'll have the corner office. It's, a, it's slightly bigger. It's got twice as many windows and, uh, and like a little more seating and, and room for my giant books on my rich shelves made of rich mahogany. Um, and so we have, uh, we have a high power distance culture here. And in the interview... He's packing up his things because the business is moving into what appears to be more of a low power distance culture. Um, no corner office, um, window light. The light coming from the window isn't hoarded in a corner office. It's like shared. It passes through the building and everyone's like, oh, light. Um, and the offices, everyone kind of has the same furniture, same decor. They all kind of work in the same space. The new interns are, are sort of sharing a space with the partners, right? Um, and so we have this shift going from the high power to the low power. And uh, I like it. I mean, if, if, if you're going to define sort of watermark, I, I guess we fit in more in a low power distance culture. Um, got a little music stand. It's not a giant podium with a big thing on it. Um, and uh, we put the band on the floor um, so as not make it a show or like exalt people. I used to preach from the floor and people used to ask, well, why do you have a stage then? I was like, to hold up the drum set. Um, <laughs> And eventually people were like, well, we can't see you get up there. I was like, okay, I'll get up there. So um, it took about a year, though. I preached right here for a long time. Um, and then a year after I got up here, we put in lights so you could see. Um, 
No joke. Uh, so, um, but there's definitely a difference in cultures. And it's not good, it's not bad, it just is what it is. It's, it's what you're used to, it's what your sort of subculture like, teaches you that things are going to be like. Um, and there's this, uh, it's not something I like to talk about. My, one of my favorite authors, Richard Foster, um, he, he writes about how the, the things that sort of make or break a society, they make it healthy and thriving society, uh, spiritually, emotionally, all of it, is how we treat three things, three, three things um, sex, money, and power. Now, churches are, we like to engage culture, right? We, we like to like sort of speak a commentary as to what, what we see, what we believe is just, what is unjust, and where things should go and change. Um, churches, we all know, love to talk about sex. They, they love to tell everyone about how everything should function everywhere, sexually, right? Um, Christians sometimes talk about money, um, usually when they're running out of it, um, or usually when they're trying to build like a, like, you know, pastor sometimes just needs a Learjet, right? And they're going to talk about money. Um, it's not true, by the way. Um, but churches, you know, sometimes talk about money. Um, I was talking to, I, had, I met a homeless guy years ago in Ebor, and we were talking, and I was like, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, I could, I, I could be a pastor. And he was like, watch this. Give me money. Give me money. Give me money. Give me money. We high-fived. Moved on. Um, sometimes it's like that. I, I've seen it. We've all seen it. Um, and so ch- while churches love to talk about sex and how that should be used, Christians sometimes talk about money. Um, the church rarely talks about power. Rarely. Um, we like to pretend we don't have it. We like to uh, pretend like um, the, the church is humble, like the church is not this incredibly massive force in this world. Um, and we like to sit around wondering, I, I wish somebody would do something, um, as the church is massive. Um, so one of the problems with, with low-power distance culture is they tend to create this illusion um, that there's no one in the group with power. That's an illusion. That's not true. Um, there's an article in Christianity Today about this very subject, how Christians should be really start talking about power. It was, it was, it was written by uh, Andy Crouch. Uh, he's, he's sort of a, a well-known figure in the church. He's a sort of a high-power distance person. But he talks a lot about what it looks like when communities take this other approach, the low-power distance. And then he writes this, I have felt the change in the atmosphere when this leader walks into a room. It's as if someone had abruptly turned down the thermostat and shut off the background music. He's a servant leader, but he is also a person with power. And this is the problem with low power distance, with the informality and the casual offices and dress codes. It can deceive us into thinking that power is not an issue that requires our attention, let alone a matter for discipleship. And the ones most likely to be deceived are the ones with the most power. And so while we all in our younger generation like to pretend we don't have any power, and we, we like to be the underdog and liken ourselves to the smaller, peop- to, to, to the, to smaller weaker people. Um, if you don't understand the power that you actually have, um, you, you are deceiving yourself. If you can't admit it, that what we are a part of can change everything for everyone. And if we can't stop acting like we're just completely impotent, we have incredible power. Um, you do. Wherever you are in your field, um, you do as well. 
Um, the question is not, do you have power? I mean, it, whoever you are, whatever your context is, if you're a leader in some context, if you're an employer, if you're a clergy, a pastor, uh, if you're a parent, an employer, a voice in your community, a house church leader, um, a, a church member, or even an attendee of church, um, you have a lot more power than you think. If you are a part of a, a majority in any way, economically, um, racially, if you, uh, or geographically, where we live, um, uh, your gender, even if you're simply a part of a majority religion, which we're gathered here as Christians on a Sunday morning, we are part of a majority religion. We are. Um, if, if that is you, you have power in some capacity. The, the question is, do you realize how much power you actually have? Do you understand um, what you are actually capable of if, if, if you were to act, exercise it? Um, the questions are actually very simple. How much power do you have? What is your goal? How will you use that power what will that power be used for? Who will benefit? Um, these are the kind of things that Jesus dealt with in the desert. Newly received and understood power. And then the weight of that falls upon him, and he has to spend some time in silence and solitude to figure out and deal with this. Wow, I never thought this would be something that is within my grasp. Here I am. I'm going to deal with this. And so the Jesus has to deal with this. Will, will your power benefit yourself? Will you make bread for yourself where others can't in the desert? Are you going to make bread for yourself? Is that what you're going to do? And it's fascinating that a little later we see bread being multiplied and fed to other people. Um, will you use it to show how great you are and draw attention to yourself like the second temptation of Jesus? Will you use it to gain more power like the third temptation? These are questions we need to answer because the fact is you're using, you're using a bit of your power and your influence every single day. I talked a couple weeks ago about kingdoms, how we all have a kingdom. If you have children, if you have a neighborhood, if you have a community, if you have a church, you have friends, you have family, you have a community. Um, you, have a, you have a kingdom. Everyone in your sphere of, uh, of influence. It, if you can say some words to somebody and really hurt them, hurt their feelings, you have power over them. It also means that you can say something really encouraging and beautiful and uplift them. That is just a small taste of the vast amount of power that you actually have in this world. Did you know, um, Pew Research tells us that 80% of Americans self-identify as Christian. 80%. Um, that's a lot of power. I don't know if you understand how much power that is in the richest nation in the world. Um, even in low power distance communities, to pretend like no one has power is dishonest. It's a waste of what God's given you. And, uh, and so the question is, the questions are different. And one of the questions we have is how did Jesus use it? Well, right off the bat, when Jesus receives his power, um, he, he, he's, he's down by the river and people are being baptized. People who understand the weight of, of the sins that they've committed, who understand that, that the faith God had given them had been absolutely destroyed by merging it together with the Roman Empire, by building these massive synagogues, by letting Herod build you a temple, and now you are sort of enslaved to the empire, and for hundreds of years getting closer and closer and closer to the empire, cozying up to it, um, but all in the back of your mind planning to overthrow it the whole time, right? Because you want power. 
And then the prophet John shows up in the wilderness, the first prophet in 400 years, and he's standing there, and he, he won't even go into the city. He's outside of the promised land. He's in the wilderness, and he's preaching in the wilderness. People start hearing, and people start gathering, and they realize this prophet has come to tell us our religion is dead, that, that God is not even in this, and that we need to leave. And so everyone leaves the promised land. They go meet John in the wilderness, and he starts one by one bringing them into the water and baptizing them and says, here's the promised land. We're going to cross the Jordan into the promised land again, but first we have to realize that we messed this up and we're going to do it different, so we're going to repent. And Jesus is there. Jesus has done nothing to be, that needs to be repented of. Jesus is the one in the authority. He's the religious elite. He can stand there, as we tend to do, and point at everyone who is repenting and say, yes, you need to repent, and we're going to get you back on the right track. We're going to run you through our 12-step program. It's going to fix you. We're going to make you all better. Um, and, and, and we're going to have a synagogue, and we're going to have all these programs, and, and you, or after you repent, we're going to run you through this. Everything's going to be fine. But instead, what Jesus does is, instead of standing on the banks and pointing, walks down, gets in the water, and repents. Everyone is fascinated by what's happening, including John. He's, what are you doing? You don't need to repent. And he does anyways. He likens himself to sinful people. He likens himself to people who actually need to repent, even though he doesn't. This is what God does. Instead of standing up high and pointing and saying, you need to change, you need to change, you need to change, I'm up here, climb your way up. God climbs down the ladder. When Jacob was in the middle of the wilderness and he's trying to find what God has for him, he's trying to find exactly what, whatever it is that, that God has for him. He wants greatness and he has nothing. The text literally has a way of saying he was poor, the best way to say it ever. He says, and he laid down to take a nap with a rock as his pillow. That's like ancient slang for like, he, he's dirt poor. And he sees this ladder, and the ladder's not for him to climb. It's for God to come down. Um, and it's fascinating, because we see this story over and over and over again. And then, and then Rome, uh, I'm sorry, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he says, God's whole nature is living in Christ in human form. So all the power of the creation of the cosmos, everything, all power to heal, um, all power to emotionally find um, wholeness again, all power to find joy and purpose is captured in there in Christ. And because you belong to Christ, you have everything you need. He is the ruler over every power and authority. So what God does is he sees people without power and likens himself to them and gives it to them. This is how power is to be used. This is the biblical example of how God uses power. We see people um, in communities or societies or movements or whatever that are that we tend to consider the religious elite as, as ill repute. And we're like, no. Um, we don't engage them. We do nothing. We separate ourselves. And then again, we draw these lines and we put them over here and we put the holy people over here. And every time we do this, we say, okay, all the holy people are here. Here's the line. There's all the, there's all the, there's all the evil ones. What we find is Jesus on that side, plunging into the water, standing with filthy people, saying, I'll repent with you. Let's do this together. That's how you use power. That's how Jesus used it. And so what does this look like in our lives today? Uh, oftentimes it means giving a platform to people with less power than you. People who are oppressed. Minorities, maybe. Or people who aren't heard. Um, 
minorities, women, people with disabilities, those that we, that have always had more power, um, have less than heard, right? And while we think the solution is to say, well, here's how you do it, climb up. That is not how God did it. It's not how God does it today. He humbles himself. And we find God in human form, standing there before us. Um, Standing side by side with those who the higher-ups consider unworthy or of ill repute. And he covers them with his own respect. A really incredibly respectful rabbi standing with someone whom the rest of the elite look down upon. He stands there and says, hey, so however you look at them, however you choose to see them, as sinful and, and awful as you look at them, I want you to look at me like that too. And so I'm going to stand here with them. And I'm okay with you looking at me like that. I will take the sin of this person upon myself. And we're going to put it in the ground. I'm going to join them in their pain, in their sorrow. I'm going to understand. And we're going to walk out together. That's how you use power. It's still power. It's just a better way to use it. It's the godly way to use it. And what you find is, usually people don't do this is because they're afraid either of losing power through losing the respect of powerful people. They're afraid of losing power by giving it. Well, I mean, if I, I, mean, if I, give, if I give my power to someone else, then I get less. No, you don't. It's not like, again, it's not like a piece of pie. It's like a fire. Like it, it lights and it spreads and it gets bigger. And when you lose your, I mean, this is, this is, from the beginning of scriptures to the end, this is the constant message. When you lose yourself, you find yourself. When you give up, you receive. When you humble yourself, you are lifted up. Down is always the way up. The least becomes the greatest. The last becomes first. This is what Jesus shows us over and over and over. And so the first question is, 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 is power okay? Because we used to talk, we, we usually, like our society, especially millennials, talk about power as if it's a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. It's actually an invisible thing that you have lots of it and you don't realize how much of it you have. And if you were to wake up to what power you have, you would have no fear in exercising it because you should know how it's done. And if you look at Christ, you can see that. And it changes people. And so the first question about power, how do we use it? We follow Jesus. The second question, how do we get it? It's the same answer. And when you look into it, you see, I mean, the manner, about, the manner in which you go about attaining power, um, oftentimes it, it seems to be a huge part of, of God's message from the very beginning. Um, so the first thing that pops into Jesus' head when he's tempted, hey, bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything you want. The first thing that pops into his head is God looking at them and saying, I'm going to give you everything you've ever desired and the ability to attain riches and power and everything that every human society has ever wanted in the world. And when you receive this, be careful because you're going to forget about me. When you have everything you need and more, you will forget who God is. You will forget the blessings I have given you. You will forget the things I have done for you. You will forget. And I'm warning you ahead of time. Like, it's the first people I've ever seen to actually get the warning ahead of time. Normally, we wake up, and we're like, ah, I've forgotten. I've forgotten. I mean, what is this all for? They get the warning ahead of time. When I give you everything, you are are going to forget about me. And they're like, no, no, no. We're good. Give it to us. You know, it's kind of like, 
No matter how many warnings you hear about winning the lotto, you're still like, nah, I'd, nah, I'd be different. $12 million would change everything for me. Like, right, I'd, I'd be good. I'd, no, I'll take the lump sum, but it will last forever, right? No, you're going to forget what life is about. You're going to have nothing to work for, nothing to live for. You're going to forget what you're even here for. That's what riches do. That's what power when focused on the wrong things, that's what it does. And so how did it go? They move into the new land over and over and over again. They start worshiping false idols and running away. Over and over and over again, it leads them into slavery, literal slavery, over and over and over again. And, and, and while they're in slavery, they wake up like, you know what, we forgot about God. They're like, oh yeah, we did. There's a time of repentance, sackcloth and ashes, and then they're brought back. A little bit later, things are going really good. And we forget about God again. And what happens? We end up again in, in, in slavery. And so then we're brought back. Um, and, then, and then the Israelites, the Jewish people are there and they're practicing it. And Herod comes along and says, hey, hey, what if I built you an awesome temple? Right? No strings attached. Build you a temple. It's going to be beautiful. Okay, sounds good. I'm going to give you, you're going to give us everything we want? Awesome. Does it again. What happens? They meld the kingdom and the empire. The whole thing goes south again by AD 70. Um, most of the Jews in Jerusalem have been wiped out, killed, and the altar has been the, the whole temple has been destroyed again, over and over and over again. This is how it goes, and the warnings are clear, and we never ever remember. A life can be so filled with possessions and opulence and power and wanting more that there's no room for spirituality. It happens all the time, and this is where the enemy, the tempter, the adversary, is really powerful and really cunning. And Christians are really susceptible to power, really susceptible to the temptation to sell our souls to the devil for power. Read church history and look around you. This is what we do. We are never satisfied with what we have. We always, God pours out for us and pours out for us and it's never enough. We just, just a little more, just a little more. And I'll bow down and worship and maybe I'll get this and this and this and this and this, all this. God's people are uniquely susceptible to the temptation for power. Um, we think that if we can somehow control governments and military might, that we could bring the heart of Jesus into the world. You know, if I had a couple fighter jets, I could fly Bibles really fast. Just saying. Um, if I had this giant like, control of this massive continent in this, in this world, I could get everyone um, to live by laws. Because that's what God wants, right? To live by the law. I think the Bible literally, literally did away with that idea. To live by grace. Because the problem is, if you, get, if you pass all the laws and we get everybody to live like Christians, none of them know Jesus. It has nothing to do with the inside. It's all the law. The law always destroys us. It reveals to us just how awful we are. But the fact is, again, okay, so here's that, here's that Pew Research. Um, 80% of this country, most powerful, most powerful country in the history of the universe, not just earth, um, 80% identify as Christians. We're, all, we're also the richest people to ever walk the planet. All of us in this room are in the top 1% of all those who have ever lived in the history of mankind. We literally, right now, could choose world leaders, and we do. We can, we, we're an economical force. We could today wipe out the world water crisis and the sex trade, take in every unwanted child from every unwanted pregnancy right now without the need to change a single law. We are that powerful. 
yet we're unsatisfied. And even more, we feel like we don't have enough or that people are taking it away. And you can prove that. There, um, uh, the, an evangelical organization called um, BioLogos put out a, 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 um, a survey that basically says that of this 80%, um, the evangelicals in this group, 80% of evangelicals, believe that they're being oppressed. Literally believe they're being oppressed. The most powerful group of people in the history of humanity right now believes that they're being oppressed. I would say they feel that way because something is broken in our souls. Because we're starting to realize that the world does not change by bowing down to the devil and using earthly kingdoms anywhere, in any country it's ever been tried. Didn't work for Constantine. Didn't work in, in, at the Vatican. Didn't work here. It's not going to work. It's not how it works. The kingdom of God is so powerful, it needs none of this. All it needs is people to wake up to the power that they have access to right now. That we can come together in these communities called churches. We can gather. We can open up these ancient words. We can read the power of the Holy, of, of the holy God. And, and we can accept, like, this is the Jesus that we, that, that we serve. And when we come together, we are the body of Christ. And we are here to do the work that Jesus was doing. And so we set off into our community to bring that healing and wholeness. And as churches, local churches, get together and do this, it turns into this global church. I mean, this is... This is the dream. I mean, this is, this is what Christians have been saying forever. But the temptation is so great to sell it all and say, it'd be just easier if we controlled everything. It's a lot harder. You're making it harder on yourselves. All of us are. We right now can change, if nothing else, we can change this city, this neighborhood. We have house churches in a 100-mile radius, small groups of 30 or so, everywhere. Um, But the fact is, if if most churches were to disappear tomorrow, I don't don't think most communities would even feel it. I don't think they even care. They'd be like, oh, free shop space, instead of... but, but they were like a huge part of our community. They were one of the backbones of our community. They brought hope and meaning and purpose here. They brought love and reconciliation. Do we do that? Jesus never sought to gain power over empires and governments. He always sought and received power by taking up the towel and the cross, washing people's feet and pouring himself out for us. And what happened with Jesus? People say, yeah, but he died. Uh, yeah, but he rose, and, and now he has, he's historically has had 18.5 billion people follow him as Lord. 18.5 billion. That's incredible. That many people have... And I know we like to say, well, I mean, a lot of people say they're Christians, but they're not really Christians. I, that's not concerning me right now. What concerns me right now is that that many people have said Jesus is an authority in my life. This poor, homeless, wandering rabbi in the wilderness 2,000 years ago shows us how power is gained. And so we can follow Lucifer up. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But the path of Christ is always down. 
when you head down, you end up finding what this is all about and you can lead people out. Um, the, greatest, uh, the greatest picture of all of this is communion. So we're going to take a few minutes and take communion. Um, communion represents how power should be used in this world. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ spilled for you. And uh, we, every single week, take a few minutes and we receive that. We all bring to the table different things. Some, some of you live holier lives than others. Some of you are well-educated in the things of God. Some of you know nothing um, and you carry a lot of guilt. But when you come to the table, you don't receive more because of your performance. You receive the same. And what you receive is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ built for you. We all receive the same. No matter what you bring, you receive the same. Because there's nothing to do except to understand and receive the grace of God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and what you're doing in our lives. Reveal to us uh, the people you want us to become. Don't let us be ignorant of the power that we have. Don't let us pretend that we don't have any. Let us be honest with ourselves about what we have been spending that power on, offer us correction. If we need to repent, help us to repent. And if we see others who we believe need to repent, instead of calling them to simply repent, help us to get into the water with them and to stand there and take their identity upon themselves, take their sin upon themselves like you did and to join them in their repentance. Continue to make us in your image, fashion us to be more like you every single day. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.